Okay, I'm going to start with a little quiz to begin with. Uh, whoops, hold on a second. Sorted. Okay, I'm going to start with a little quiz to begin with. Uh, who knows what movie this is from? You don't put your hand, shout out, Julie. Princess Bride. Okay, now here's the hard question. Who knows the quote from this scene? Lachelle? Oh, Oren. Oren knows the quote. <laughs> uh, yep, I think he does say it there, but not, not that one. Yeah, what does he say after he says inconceivable? Someone mumbled it. Exactly, yep. So the quote is, you keep using that word, I do not think it means what you think it means. Everyone remember that? You keep using that word, I do not think it means what you think it means. And as we come to our second sermon on singleness, uh, there's going to be a few times this morning where we're going to read, read something and it's going to be a case of, I do not think that means what you think it means. If you're growing up in, in a church or if you've heard some teaching about marriage and singleness, then I think there's going to be a few surprises in this sermon. There are going to be times when, when we'll be talking about something and that might not mean what you think it means. So as I said, this is our kind of second part in our two-part series and we're looking at Matthew chapter 19. Now, before we get there, though, last week, if you remember, if you were here last week, we saw that in the age to come, we will all be single. And so that reality should change the way that we think about singleness now in this present age. If singleness continues in the age to come, but marriage ends, then singleness isn't any less than marriage. Singleness is not a lesser state to be escaped from. And so we need to uphold both marriage and singleness as good things that God has given to us and given to this world. That's kind of the summary of last week, uh, but you can go and listen to that if you want to. But this week, we're going to think more deeply about, about being single and about being single for the sake of the kingdom of heaven. Uh, that idea came up in the passage that we read, which was a conversation that Jesus is having with some Pharisees about divorce and remarriage. Now, I'm certainly not going to cover everything that needs to be said about divorce and remarriage today, but we're going to touch on it a little bit. Uh, our focus today, though, is on singleness. So we won't cover everything, but we'll say some stuff. So as usual, uh, Jesus is teaching the crowds... And kind of as usual, uh, some Pharisees come up to Jesus to try and test him. And they ask the question that's there in verse 3. Is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife for any and every reason? And what they're doing is they're asking Jesus to weigh in on an, it, an, an internal debate that the Pharisees have been having. There was this debate raging at the time about what were the legitimate grounds for divorce. Uh, the Old Testament allowed for divorce, but it was a little bit ambiguous as to what 
kind of constitutes a legitimate reason for divorce. And so these two groups within the Pharisees had formed. On the one hand, there was the group that said you could divorce your wife for whatever reason you wanted. So if she burnt your dinner, then that was reason enough for you to divorce your wife. But on the other hand, there was this other group that said, no, no, it had to be for something really serious like adultery. And so these Pharisees, they're asking Jesus to weigh in on that debate and to come down on which side he's on. And Jesus begins his answer by talking about marriage in a perfect world, a perfect world where there is no sin. And he says there in verse 4, haven't you read that at the beginning, the creator made the male and female, and he said, for this reason, a man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife, and the two will become one flesh. So they are no longer two, but one flesh. Therefore, what God has joined together, let no one separate. See, in a perfect world, there is no divorce. Because in a perfect world, men and women would love each other perfectly. And so in a perfect world, divorce is off the table. It's ruled out of play. It has no place in God's world. And even though we don't live in a perfect world now... That doesn't mean that we shouldn't strive towards the ideal that God originally intended. Jesus reminds us of of the ideal, and he does that so that we would continue to strive towards it. As it says there, what God has joined together, let no one separate. But the Pharisees, well, remember, they're they're the law guys. They really love the law, and and they're really into the law. They quickly realize that the ideal for marriage doesn't square, doesn't match with what the law says. And so they ask the obvious follow-up question, why then did Moses command that a man give his wife a certificate of divorce and send her away? And it's here that Jesus goes from talking about marriage in a perfect world, to marriage in a sin-filled world. Look at verse 8 with me. Jesus replied, Moses permitted you to divorce your wives because your hearts were hard, but it was not this way from the beginning. See, our world has changed. We now live in a world where sin is in every part of our lives. And so there's going to be husbands and wives who don't love each other the way that they should. And so within this new context, the law allows for divorce. And Jesus says that Moses permitted you to divorce your wives because your hearts were hard. Now notice that Jesus says permitted, rather than commanded. The Pharisees want to talk about how Moses commanded it, but Jesus corrects them and reminds them that Moses permitted divorce rather than commanded that. But the main point is that sin creates this hardness of heart where we are not loving, where we are not humble, where we are not kind, where we are not caring. And so we don't look after our spouses the way that we should. The Bible, the Bible absolutely sets before us the ideal of marriage. 
a marriage that is without divorce. But the Bible is also brutally honest. It acknowledges the reality of sin in our world, that sin has its sticky little fingers in every part of our lives. And so because of the reality of sin, there will be divorce. But it's not meant to be like that. And so into the reality of broken relationships and divorces, Jesus gives some guidelines about divorce. He says divorce is not a free-for-all where you can divorce someone over any and every reason. He says that divorce is allowed in the case of adultery. Because in the case of adultery, someone has already broken the one flesh union of a husband and a wife by becoming one flesh with someone else. They've already separated what God has joined together. It's not a command, you don't have to divorce someone, but it's permitted. Now, there's way more that we need to say about that, but that's for another sermon. From here, the conversation shifts. And Jesus goes from uh, speaking to the Pharisees and to the crowds to a private conversation with his disciples. Uh, The disciples have found what Jesus has been saying a bit challenging, and so they say, if this is the situation between a husband and a wife, it is better not to marry. And so Jesus begins this weird section talking about eunuchs. Look at verse 11 and 12 with me. Jesus replied, Not everyone can accept this word, but only those to whom it has been given. For there are eunuchs who were born that way, and there are eunuchs who have been made eunuchs by others. And there are those who choose to live like eunuchs for the sake of the kingdom of heaven. The one who can accept this should accept it. To understand why Jesus brings up eunuchs here, we need to do what Jesus has been doing in this section and go back to the beginning. So come back with me to the beginning, come back to the garden, come back to Genesis 1, as we think about singleness in a sin-filled world. See, in the beginning, God made a garden. And then God made Adam... And he placed him in the garden and commanded him to work the ground and to take care of the garden. But there are some jobs which men should not do by themselves. Uh, When we were camping a couple of weeks ago, uh, we had this awning that was really hard to put up uh, by, by yourself, and I needed someone to help me. And as God looks at Adam in the garden with the job that he's given him, God looks at that and thinks it's not good for the man to be alone. It's not that Adam is lonely. Rather, it's that he's got a job to do and he's trying to do it by himself. Now, I could have asked anyone in the campsite to help me with the awning, but Adam doesn't need just anybody. He needs someone who is both like him but also different to him. He needs someone who is the same as him, but also different. And so God makes Eve, this woman who is a human like him, but also different to him. And then God tells them to fill the earth and subdue it. And so marriage becomes the primary way that humanity is able to fulfill the commands of God, 
Marriage is the only way that uh, the earth can be filled, the only way that there can be offspring to carry out the role of expanding the garden. And so marriage becomes the primary way that humanity fulfills the commands of God that he had given to Adam and Eve at the beginning. And as you look at that picture of humanity in the garden, notice that singleness has no place in God's perfect world. And so singleness becomes this thing to be escaped from and rejected and removed at all cost, which is exactly what you see in the law of Israel. As the story continues and God's people grow into this nation of Israel, they're given laws. And whenever the laws talk about marriage and divorce and widows, what the law tries to do is, is it tries to minimise and reduce singleness. And so you end up with situations like the one that we looked at last week, where if a woman gets married but her husband dies, she's then to marry his brother. And there's a few reasons why that needs to happen, but it's also because the law is designed to minimise singleness to do whatever it can to get rid of it and remove it because they are contrary to God's original intention for the world. Now, of course, there were widows in Israel, but they tended to be elderly and they were the exception. As much as possible, singleness was to be avoided and removed. So much so that the eunuchs were not allowed to belong to God's people. There was this law in Deuteronomy 23 that says that anyone who's been emasculated may not enter the assembly of God's people. Eunuchs were not allowed to be part of Israel's worship services. It all looks pretty bleak for singleness. And it all looks pretty bleak for the eunuchs. But there's this interesting little promise in Isaiah 56 that says that one day the eunuchs will be welcomed in, welcomed into Israel's worship service. And then years and years later, Jesus steps into history. And Jesus is the most perfect human that has ever lived, and he's single. If God made marriage to be the vehicle whereby humanity fulfills the earth and rules over it, then how can the Messiah, the King, possibly rule the earth by being single? But that's the point. That's the point. The status quo has changed. And so that now singleness, which was once rejected and removed and to be excluded and gotten rid of and sidelined, in Jesus, is now retrieved and revitalized and redeemed. Now, singleness is not something to be escaped from, but something to be cherished and loved as a good thing that God has given to his people and to his world. Because of Jesus, because of Jesus, it is no longer a shameful thing to say that you are single. And so shame on us if we ever look down on singleness. To look down on singleness is to look down on our king who himself is single. 
And so the fulfilment of Isaiah 56 comes true. Isaiah 56 promised that one day eunuchs would get a special place in God's temple. And now because of Jesus, that becomes a reality. And so that's the first reason Jesus mentions eunuchs here. He mentions eunuchs because things have changed. And so now they are no longer rejected, but are welcomed in as part of God's people. But the second reason why Jesus mentions eunuchs is because they are a living example of singleness in the first century. In the first century, uh, they were the group of people that Jesus could kind of point to to best represent this new relationship status that had been redeemed with the coming of Jesus. And in our passage, Jesus mentions three types of eunuchs. There are those who are eunuchs by their circumstance, by compulsion, and by choice. Circumstance, that is, they're born with some sort of deformity or something. A compulsion, that is, something had done that to them, someone had done that to them. You know, think of a slave being forced to become a eunuch by their master. Or choice, those who chose themselves to become eunuchs. Which sounds pretty radical, but actually eunuchs had a pretty privileged position. They got to work for the king and queen. A king would choose eunuchs to work for him because there wasn't any chance of them fooling around with the queen or the princess and thereby creating an heir for the throne that, you know, would undermine the king. And so eunuchs had this privileged place in the court. And so some people, of course, would choose to become eunuchs. And Jesus mentions those three types of eunuchs. And as I said, they take on this lasting significance for us because they are living examples in the first century of singleness. Singleness happens for a variety of reasons, and I don't expect to know them all or know your particular situation. But there are some single people who would love to get married, but that option never presents itself. And there are others who, through a combination of circumstance and choice, choose to remain single instead of pursuing a relationship with someone that God forbids. Singleness isn't something that happens as a result of just one factor. It's a complex web of circumstance, compulsion, and choice. And so how are single people meant to live for Jesus amongst those factors? And as we consider what it means for a single person to live for Jesus, we often want to focus, I think, on that third option, the idea of chosen singleness. Because, of course, they're the ones who've chosen to be single for the sake of the kingdom of heaven. Surely that's how you live for Jesus, is by choosing to live for the kingdom of heaven. But notice that Jesus doesn't just mention chosen singleness. He mentions three types of singleness. And even though the third category specifically mentions the kingdom of heaven that doesn't mean that the other types don't also live for the kingdom too. Let me just say that again so we get it. 
even though someone might choose to remain single for the sake of the kingdom, that doesn't mean that other forms of singleness aren't also living for the kingdom too. Because isn't that what all Christians are called to do? All Christians are called to live for the kingdom. In Corinth, uh, there was a church there, and the Christians there were confused about whether you had to get married or whether you had to divorce your spouse when you became a Christian. And so Paul writes to them to clarify what they were to do. And he says this in chapter 7. He says, Each person should live as a believer in whatever situation the Lord has assigned to them, just as God has called them. This is the rule I lay down in all the churches. See, Paul says to them, the situation in which God has called you is a perfectly good situation to live out God's calling. So if you're a banker, you don't need to suddenly become a baker. If you're an engineer, you don't need to become a teacher. And if you're single, you don't need to get married. And if you're married, you don't need to be single. The situation in which God has called you is a perfectly good situation to live out God's calling. And that kind of basic idea pushes against the common myth about singleness. See, in that same chapter, Paul talks about this thing called the gift of singleness and the gift of marriage. And this is one of those times where this doesn't mean what you think it means. See, the gift of marriage and the gift of singleness is not this supernatural booster shot that enables a single person to cope with being single. Nor, it, nor does it allow a person to just ace marriage. You know, as if I've got the gift of singleness, therefore my marriage is amazing. Uh, that's not what that is. Actually, the gift of singleness and the gift of marriage, they're actually an objective status. So if you're married, then you have the gift of marriage. If you're single, then you have the gift of singleness. So just think for a moment what it would mean if, if the gift of singleness was this special supernatural gift that some people had and not others. If that was the case, then that would mean that someone could say that God had given them the gift of singleness and therefore they should divorce their wife or their husband. You know, think about that. Like, if I, if I start claiming God's given me the gift of singleness, then why shouldn't I divorce Angela to use my gift that God has given me? <laughs> or, or the other way around. Think about someone who desperately wants to get married but remains single. Is God the sort of person that gives someone the spiritual gift of marriage that they can't use? Of course not. The gift of marriage and the gift of singleness aren't these supernatural gifts that only certain people have. No, they're an objective status. If you're married, then you have the gift of marriage. If you're single, then you have the gift of singleness. And God has given each person, what they need to live for him in the situation that God has placed them in. 
See, we don't need some special gift. We don't need this kind of spiritual booster shot. God has given us everything that we already need. As Titus chapter 2, verse 11 and 12 says, For the grace of God has appeared that offers salvation to all people. It teaches us to say no to ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled and upright and godly lives in this present age. See, God has sent his son to die for me and for you, to redeem us from our sin. God has promised that his spirit, his very self, is dwelling within us and sanctifying us. Brothers and sisters, you don't need an extra spiritual booster shot to live for Jesus. He has already given us, he's given you everything that you need. God has given all of us what we need to live for him. See, the situation in which God has called you is a perfectly good situation to live out God's calling. Whether you're single or married, or whether your, your relationship status is complicated, whether you work or not, whether you're at school or at uni or at TAFE, whether things are tough or cruisy, whether you're sick or healthy. By His Spirit and through His Word, God has already given you and me everything that we need to live for Him. And so if you're single, you don't need to be married to live for God. And, we, and so we shouldn't be telling our, our single brothers and sisters that marriage is the only place that Christian living happens. You know, marriage isn't any more sanctifying than singleness. Whether you're married or single, all of it will come with struggles and difficulties and challenges. But God by His Spirit and through His Word, has given us what we need to live for Him in whatever situation He has placed us. And so all of us can learn to say no to ungodliness. All of us can learn to live self-controlled and upright lives. Let me pray for us as we seek to live for God and live for His kingdom. Father God, thank you so much for the situations in which you have placed us. Lord, sometimes those situations are challenging and difficult. Sometimes the circumstances that we face are very, very hard. Lord, please help us to be able to live for you in those places. Lord, thank you that you have given us what we need to live for you. Please, Lord, help us to say no to ungodliness, to worldly passions. Help us to live self-controlled, upright and godly lives. Lord, please help us to please you, we pray. Amen.